And now for our scripture reading. It'll be from Acts 26, 1 through 23, which can be found on page 935. And this is a bit longer than normal, so I really do encourage you to follow along on page 935 in that Pew Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to take that Pew Bible home as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have that. All right, Acts 26, 1 through 23. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from power, from the power of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Caroline. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here, and as we uh, take a moment to look at this passage of scripture that we just heard read, I want to pause now and, and ask that uh, that God would do afresh here what, what Jesus uh, said he sent Paul to do, which is to open our hearts, um, to open our eyes to this word. So let's do that now. Father in heaven, uh, we do pray uh, along these same lines that you uh, proclaimed to Paul that day on Damascus so many, many years ago, um, that you would open our eyes, 
that you would open our hearts to the good news, the truth of the gospel. Perhaps the first time, um, or, or in new ways today, no matter how long we've followed you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. One of my all-time favorite movies is the uh, classic, A Few Good Men. It's written by Aaron Sorkin, who's one of the masters of, of dialogue and, and writing. And I think it was the first film that made me realize the power of great writing coupled with great acting. Um, you know, and I probably first saw it when I was in college. And uh, for a kid who had grown up uh, in middle school, I probably watched one of the Star Wars trilogy uh, every weekend, and that was kind of my, my measure of what a great movie was. And Star Wars is a great movie, but it does not succeed because of its, its great dialogue or its great acting, right? I mean, it, it succeeds on other levels, but that's not what makes it a great film. And so A Few Good Men opened up this new world of cinema to me, of, of the power of, of great writing and, and phenomenal acting. And it's the, it's the quintessential courtroom drama, and it, it culminates with, with Tom Cruise interrogating Jack Nicholson on the witness stand. And, and from the witness stand, Jack Nicholson screams, you want answers? To which Cruz replies, I want the truth. And then Nicholson replies with one of those famous lines in all movie history. You know it, right? You can't handle the truth. Right. There's something, uh, but you guys can handle the truth, right? Um, but there's something about the courtroom setting. It, it, it draws us in, the stakes, the quest for, for truth and for justice. You know, it's, an, it's not an accident that there are, are thousands of books and films and TV shows that are, that are set in or around the, the courtroom. John Grisham novels, however many franchise of, of Law and Order we're up to now. Right? All of these different shows and books and stories that revolve around the idea of, of the courtroom. And here this morning we find Paul in a courtroom. And we said last week that these final chapters of the book of Acts, they're, they're marked by two T's of, of travel and, and then Paul being on trial, travel and trials. And last week we looked at Paul's travels to Jerusalem and his subsequent arrest once he arrived there. And actually in the rest of the book of Acts, we're never going to see Paul as a free man again. He's going to remain in Roman prison until the end of the book. And that's where we, we leave Paul in Acts chapter 28. In chapter 23, Paul is put on trial before the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling body. And in the end, that group can't make a decision about what to do with him. In fact, it ends up in this big fight, this argument, and they have to, to pull Paul out because they're threatening to kill him. And they put him back into the Roman prison to protect him. And the Jews that night craft a plan that this next morning when they take him back to the, the courtroom that we're going to be waiting for him in between the prison and the court. And we're going to jump out and, and, and kill Paul. But Paul learns of this plan. They find out about this uh, thing, that's, this plot against Paul. And so the Roman uh, military force decides we're going to move Paul from Jerusalem. It's too dangerous from here and take him to Caesarea. And so under the guard of, of 200 soldiers and, and 70 different uh, cavalry units and 200 spearmen, this massive guard force, they move Paul from Jerusalem to another city, to Caesarea. And once again, in Caesarea, he's on trial again, this time before the governor, Felix. And Felix hears his case, but again, nothing conclusive is decided. And after testifying before Felix, Paul is put under house arrest in Caesarea. And he gets stuck there for two years under house arrest. 
So not only do we see travel and trials, but a lot of time passes in these final chapters of the book of Acts. Two years Paul spends under house arrest in Caesarea. And the text tells us that part of the reason that he's stuck there in prison is that Felix, the governor, is hoping that some of Paul's friends will get together and, and pay him a bribe to release him. But no, no one does this. And so Paul is just stuck there waiting. In fact, he waits so long that Festus's term as governor expires and there's a new governor who comes in, Festus. And Festus uh, doesn't even really totally know why Paul's there, and so he calls Festus along with another king, King Agrippa, uh, who ruled in this area. Festus and Agrippa, they call Paul, and they say, come and, and tell us um, why you're here, because Paul had appealed to go to Caesar in Rome to present his case there. But Festus says, I'm not going to send you to Rome without some kind of letter of, of charges against you, so come and present your case. And so it's that defense, that case before King Agrippa and Festus that, that we heard read for us in Acts chapter 26 this morning. And the question I want to stop and, and ask as we're looking at this text today, these verses, is what happens when Christianity gets put on trial? What comes out? Because it's, it's not just Paul who's on trial ultimately before Agrippa and Festus and ultimately Caesar someday. But it's the Christian faith itself. That's why Paul's there. So what, what comes out when Christianity is on trial? Well, first, when Christianity is on trial, one of the things that is revealed is, is this inexplicable transformation. And you see this in, in verses 1 through 18 that we heard read for us. Uh, Paul had been in prison now, again, for two years in Caesarea, and, and he's called before Festus and King Agrippa and, and King Agrippa's half-sister Bernice, and they're, they're gathered there. And at this point, again, Paul had appealed to, to Caesar, and this is the moment where he's giving his defense of, of why he's there, why he's been arrested. And at the heart of what Paul communicates is he communicates his own transformation after his personal encounter with the risen Jesus. Because you see, it's Paul's encounter with Jesus that forms the basis of his witness to Jesus. I want to say that again, because it's not just true for Paul, it's it's true for, for each of us who would consider themselves a Christian. That it's our own personal encounter with Jesus that forms the basis of our witness to him. Paul begins in verses 4 through 11 to describe his life before this encounter with Jesus. He, he says, people knew me before I was a Christian. They knew I was one of the strictest kind of Jews you could be. I was a Pharisee. I lived that strict Jewish life. And in fact, Paul says, but now I'm on trial because of the hope that I have in Jesus, who's the fulfillment of all the Jewish laws and promises. And it's that hope that I have that I'm here. But before I had this transformational encounter with with Jesus, I had tried, Paul says, to destroy the Jesus movement violently. This is whenever there was a moment to to put a Christian to death, I cast my vote in favor of that happening. I pursued them to to other cities. I locked them up in prison. I, I mistreated them. But then something happened. Something happened in Paul's life, he says, something that changed all of that. There's a transformation that is inexplicable, inexplicable, apart from the one thing, the 
One thing being an encounter with Jesus. This personal encounter that Paul has with Jesus is so key for Luke's story of the early church that he records for us in the book of Acts that he records it three different times. Right? If you have something in the Bible once, that's pretty significant. You should pay attention to it. If it's, if it's recorded twice, okay, what about? We better really take a look. If it's there three times, this is really important. There's three different times in the book of Acts where Luke recounts the story of Paul's encounter with Jesus on this road to Damascus. First time is in Acts chapter 9. Kind of actually, Luke kind of puts it in the history as it's unfolding. And then we get another account of it in Acts chapter 22 as Paul retells it before the Sanhedrin moment in Jerusalem. And then now, here again in Acts chapter 26, Paul's story is recorded. And the reason for this, again, I think partly is because, again, it's our encounter with Jesus that forms the basis of our witness to him. Because, because witness, witnesses, they, they give testimony not about their opinion or what they think, but of what they've seen, of what they've experienced. And Jesus commissioned his followers way back at the beginning of Acts, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 8. He called them and said to them, you are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. This is one of our, our identifiers of what it means to be a Christian, is to be a witness of the encounter that we have had with Jesus, of what we've experienced. And what is it that Paul experienced? A radical transformation, a transformation at the deepest level. When Paul encounters Jesus, the risen and reigning Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus says to him, why are you persecuting me? Paul asks, who are you, Lord? And this is how Jesus responds. And, And the way that Jesus replies to Paul's question in this moment points to the depth of transformation that those who become Christians experience. Now listen to these words of Jesus to Paul once again. Jesus says, Paul, arise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you. And this is the key part. This is the transformation. Verse 18, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what is the transformation that Christians undergo? They go from being enemies to family. They go from from the battlefield to the living room. They go from uh, the power of Satan, Jesus says, to the power of God, from, from condemnation to forgiveness, from being trapped in inescapable patterns of sin to new growth and freedom in Christ. You see, to be a set apart for God they, they go to this new life of being lived out in, for, for Jesus' purposes, for God's design, according to his plan for life. That's what, what it means when, when Jesus says there at the end that, that they're sanctified by faith in me, the sense that we're set apart. We begin to live this life that God has designed for us to live. And, and that sort of transformation only occurs when you encounter Jesus. It only encounters, happens when you encounter Jesus. 
Have you experienced that? Have you experienced that kind of transformation? You see, just coming to church or being a good person doesn't make you a Christian. Even coming to church every Sunday, that's not what makes you a Christian. I, I once heard someone say that, that coming to, to church um, it doesn't make you a Christian in the same way that just going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. <laughs> right? What makes you a Christian is that you have been transferred from darkness to light. That you've been free from the power of Satan and that you are now under the, the rule and kingdom of God. That's, that's at the heart of what it is to be a Christian. Being a part of a church family is a, is a vital part of that, but just simply coming to a service doesn't make you a Christian. And so Paul points to this inexplicable transformation in his own life, and then he points to an incomparable Savior. And we see this in verses in 19 through 23, where Paul says that, that the entire Jewish scriptures, the, the Old Testament, everything from Genesis all the way through the end of the Old Testament, he summarizes it with this phrase, the prophets and Moses was a way of talking about the whole Jewish Old Testament, the, the Jewish Bible. He says everything in that ultimately is pointing to Jesus. It's about him. It finds meaning in him. It was looking forward to him. Look again at verses 22 and 23. Paul says, to this day... I've had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. He's saying, I'm, I'm saying what the prophets and Moses are saying, that Christ, the Christ, the Messiah, must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There is no one else like Jesus. There's no one else like him. And when you encounter him in the Gospels, which for us today, 2,000 years after his death and resurrection, is the primary way that we encounter Jesus through his word, and, and in particular, the stories of his life and death and resurrection in the Gospels. When we encounter him there, there's something that you, you can't just dismiss let me give you an example of this. Uh, Charles Templeton was one of the, um, was a close friend, associate of Billy Graham's in the 1940s. Um, but by the 1950s, Templeton had renounced his faith and become an agnostic. In fact, he, he never changed his mind on that and, and died back in 2001, still an agnostic. And, and one of Templeton's final interviews was with Lee Strobel, who is the author of the book, uh, The Case for Christ. And I just want to, when you listen to how Temple describes Jesus after years of having walked away from his faith, this is Lee Strobel's account of that interview. He was, speaking of Jesus, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was intrinsically the wisest person I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say of him except that this was a form of greatness? And Templeton continues talking about Jesus. He says, there have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Jesus. 
In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. And then Strobel pauses and he describes what happens next. He writes, that's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, Templeton said, his voice began to crack. I, I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward and raising his left hand to shield his face from me, his shoulders bobbed as he wept. There's a reason that the apostle Peter, before Jesus' death, and Peter had all kinds of reasons to doubt, to wonder if Jesus was really going to do what he said he was going to do and who he was. But in crowds started to walk away from Jesus. There was this massive uh, kind of exodus from people following Jesus. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter and the other disciples. He says, are you going to leave too? And Peter just looks at him and says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. If Peter knew it, Templeton knew it, there is no one like Jesus. No one. And if you want to condemn Christianity and, and put it to death, you have to condemn Jesus too. He's at the very center of it. But I, I suspect that if you read the Gospels carefully, you will find it very, very hard to condemn him. He is an incomparable Savior. So you see, when you put Christianity on trial, you see this, this pattern of sort of this inexplicable transformation. You see this incomparable Savior, and you're also faced with undeniable facts. Undeniable facts. Because hey, just as Paul is, is making the statement that Jesus suffered and rose from the dead, just as Moses and the prophets promised he would, he's, he's really building to the, this kind of climax of his presentation. Festus interrupts and, and yells out in a loud voice, verse 24, Paul, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your, your great learning has driven you out of your mind. But listen how to Paul responds in verse 25. To the contrary, he says, Festus, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. And then he says, for the king knows about these things. Agrippa, who's sitting here next to Festus, he says, the king, king Agrippa, he knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. I love that line, for this has not been done in the corner. Paul is standing there speaking to Festus, and, he, and Agrippa is standing there. He was a ruler over this part of the world where all these things, the events of Jesus' life had unfolded just you know, 30 years earlier. What does Paul mean by this has not been done in a corner? He means the events of Jesus' life, his death on a Roman cross, his resurrection from the dead, the empty tomb, all this is just, this is recent history. This has just happened. And he says, Agrippa, he knows about this. Agrippa's father was, was ruling uh, during the, the time when these things took place. In fact, Agrippa's father had, had executed James, had imprisoned Peter. Agrippa himself had witnessed the rise of, of the Jesus movement in the church. Paul says, I'm not out of my mind. I'm pointing to things that have happened in history. 
history that Agrippa has witnessed. And Kathy Keller, she puts it this way. She writes, there is nothing to be gained by clinging to a myth, a falsehood, or a lie. When life is raw and wretched, the only stability to be found is the truth wherever it exists. And she says, I thought of this recently as I mused on the necessity of a historical, verifiable fact as the foundation of the Christian faith. She writes, of all belief systems, Christianity is the only one that insists its truth must be founded on the historical existence of a person named Jesus, and that further, he historically, and the things that he historically said and did. She says, every other faith system, even faith in science or education or political power, draws its significance from the good advice it provides its adherents. If you live a certain way, observe it in a number of important rules, act according to these precepts, well, life will be good to you. You will be respected and possibly revered for making a difference in the progress of civilization. But then listen to how she concludes. It's up on the screens here. A Christian's faith, however, isn't in the ethical teaching of the Bible. Rather, the Christian places his faith, her hope of renewal, his confidence in forgiveness in the actions of someone else, in Jesus Christ. If he didn't live as he lived, die as he died, rise as he promised, then we Christians are spending our lives chasing a fairy tale, childish, stupid, pitiable. You see, the story of Christianity does not begin with once upon a time. The story of Christianity begins with he is not here, for he is risen, just as he said, come see the place where he lay. That's where Christianity starts, with an empty tomb. It doesn't begin with, with have blind faith in a fairy tale. No, it says come see the empty tomb for yourself. An undeniable fact. That we have to make sense of. Inexplicable transformation, an incomparable Savior, undeniable facts, and then finally, incomprehensible love. See, Paul here is on trial for his life. He's on trial for his life. And all he wants to do in that moment is persuade Agrippa of the truth of the reality of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And, and all of a sudden, this, like, this clicks for Agrippa. He realizes that's what Paul is trying to do, and he's astounded. He says in verse 28, look, he says, and Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Agrippa seems to be saying that, Paul, you can't think that you will convince me to become a Christian yet, do you? Is that, is that really what you're trying to do here, is actually convert me to Christianity? And Paul's insistence is, yes, that's exactly what he's trying to do. Verse 29, and Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. You see, Agrippa can't comprehend the sort of love that would move Paul to plead, not for his own release from prison. Never is Paul trying to do that. To plead not for his own release from prison, but, but, but using his imprisonment as an opportunity to persuade those who have imprisoned him to believe. 
I mean, do you see? That's, that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's not trying to get out of jail. He's not trying to talk his way out of this. He's, in, he's appealed to Caesar. He wants to go to Rome and do this there. He's using jail as an opportunity to convince those who put him in jail to believe in Jesus. That is the kind of radical love the gospel of Jesus Christ creates in his followers. And, and you see that in the end, that what's more compelling What's more compelling than, than any sort of presentation that we can give, any kind of argument that we can make, is our love for those whom we seek to persuade that Jesus loves them and has died for them and wants them to follow him. You see, when you couple a, a deep-seated conviction of the facts of the gospel a humble confidence, not, not a dogmatic arrogance, but a humble confidence in the facts of the gospel, when you couple that with a warm tenderness, joy, passion, with the love of Christ, in the end, you end up being the sort of person who people want to believe with. You know, they, they may have their doubts, they may have their struggles, they may be skeptical, but they they sort of can't help but at least to want that kind of intangible something that you exude. They want it to be true. It's that personal encounter with Jesus that becomes the foundation of our witness to him. And when that encounter with Jesus shapes all of our life, it becomes compelling to those around us wherever we are. One of the greatest preachers and theologians of the 20th century uh, John Stott tells the story in a book he wrote on preaching um, about David Hume. David Hume was the 18th century uh, philosopher who rejected historic Christianity, and he, he once met a friend, Hume did, hurrying along an, uh, a London street. And Hume asked his friend, where are you going? And, and the friend replies that he was going off to hear one of the leading voices of the great awakening, George Whitfield, the preacher. But surely you don't believe what Whitfield preaches, do you? Hume asks his friend. And no, his friend replies, I don't, but he does. I don't, but he does. People wanted to hear Whitfield, even if they didn't believe him because of the conviction and passion and love with which he spoke about Jesus. This past week, I came across a more recent example of this. I'm sure many of you heard uh, this week of the passing of Aretha Franklin, the, the Queen of Soul. And as the remembrances and tributes uh, and pieces and reflections on her life flooded the airways and internet and newspapers, um, two pieces in particular grabbed my attention. They were both actually published on the sports and pop culture website, The Ringer, this week. And they both bear witness to, the, uh, to Aretha Franklin's ability to communicate her conviction and belief in God through her music that could move even the most skeptical to a place of some transcendence or some longing. Listen to the, the first piece by um, Rob Harvilla describes her music. He says, The more heartbroken she sounded, the more triumphant she became. And when she leaned back churchward as she did on the nuclear coda in 1968's People Get Ready, we actually sang that this morning, the first song, she was the only pop singer who could not only make you believe in God, but see God. 
She was the only pop singer who could not only make you believe in God, but see God. And, and, and Rembrandt Brown, in his piece, A Friend in Aretha, The Spiritual Power of the Queen of Souls, Amazing Grace, describes a, a similar experience that he had, especially with her singing that, that classic hymn, The Amazing Grace. This is what he writes. He says, Technically, Amazing Grace is art at its highest form, the work of a, a bona fide musical genius at her peak. And yet, for me, somehow, that's not even the most impressive or important attribute. For as long as I can remember hearing these songs, the album, a lifelong soundtrack to growing up around the Black Baptist Church, there's been a moment on each song that Aretha does something that makes me believe in God. More than any sermon, any text, or any life moment, it's Aretha that keeps me a believer in something. On amazing grace, the belief that Aretha exudes about her God is all the convincing I need that she's right. It's not any specific word or phrase she says. It's that she feels so much. It makes you want to go through it with her and feel that too. Now clearly, uh, you and I are not George Whitfield. <laughs> we are not Aretha Franklin. But, but we share in common with them something. If we are Christians... And that is a deep, personal encounter with Jesus. And our story of transformation becomes our, our encounter with Jesus, that, that moment of, of transformation that we experience with him based on the facts of the gospel and history, coupled with the incomprehensible love for him and our neighbor, can make our lives and our stories every bit as compelling as anyone who has ever loved and followed Jesus. You may think, oh, Bill, I, I just, I don't actually have that great of a story of coming to know Jesus. You know, I, I grew up in the church, um, grew up in a Christian family. I just feel like I've kind of always known Jesus. I, I don't have this life of, you know, I was living this life of crime and then I, you know, became a model citizen. I didn't have a, a Paul on the road to Damascus kind of moment. That's just not my story. Some of you have those stories, but you might say, Bill, that's just not my story. I don't have a story to tell like that. And it's true. Not everyone has a story like that. But, but, everyone's story of coming to Jesus is a dramatic story of radical transformation. Because everyone's story of coming to Jesus is a story of being transferred from darkness into light, of being moved from spiritual death to spiritual life, from being moved from the power of Satan to the power of God. Every single human being in history needs that to be their story. To be moved from a place of condemnation and eternal death to be moved to a place of forgiveness and eternal life. You see, the gospel is fundamentally about taking spiritually dead people, which we all are apart from Jesus, and making them spiritually alive through faith in him. Faith in him and in nothing else. And friends, there is no more dramatic story than that of being moved from death to life. Brothers and sisters, this is our story. This is our song, praising our Savior all the day long. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you 
have transferred so many of us from darkness into light. Lord, I pray that if there are those even here this morning who have yet to have their eyes opened to see Jesus, have yet to encounter him in that transformational kind of way, would even today be the day for them. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the risen and reigning King, and the power of the Holy Spirit that he has poured into our hearts. Amen.